Faye, in this era of rapidly changing practice with respect to COVID, I am so happy that I have a continued subscription to the OBG project. Definitely. I have really appreciated my OBG First subscription as well because I get a lot of my information actually from my phone. And so when they email me and I'm able to rapidly click on those articles and read them before they go away, that really allows me to continue to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And it's even beyond just COVID, right? They send us summaries of the latest and greatest and randomized trials for obstetrics, gynecology, and primary care, as well as other interesting articles that, hey, that just may be relevant to my practice or just something fun to know. So if you're a fourth-year resident like Nick and I, you can get one year of subscription to OBG First absolutely free. And we have actually gone beyond our first year, and I have continued to subscribe to uh, the OBG Project and OBG First just because I think that it is so helpful for my current practice and for my learning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we're very excited to have Dr. Ahmed Lagrano. Um, Dr. Lagrano is a PGY3 of internal medicine at Yale. And he is going to talk to us today a little bit about what your primary care doctor wants you to know as an OBGYN. So welcome, Dr. Lagrano, onto our podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. I mean, this is a uh, wonderful. <laughs> so, for kind of our learning objectives today, guys, it's a very broad overview, I guess. Again, of what exactly, from a primary care perspective, OBGYNs need to know, um, and we'll kind of tackle this on a topic by topic basis of common problems that may you may see as an OBGYN coming into your office um, that you may not be 100% sure what to do with, but you're pretty sure that there's something that you need to do. So Ahmed, let me start off, I guess, you know, one of the things that we always do for visits is get a set of vitals, right? Like everybody gets a blood pressure number. And I think that sometimes like particularly as women get older and we're not thinking about blood pressure in the pregnancy context, we don't know what to do with blood pressure anymore, right? We're not sending off preeclampsia labs when they're 45 and non-pregnant. Um, so <laughs> where do we go from here when we see elevated blood pressures in non-pregnant women? Yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful place to start. Blood pressure is like one of the most common things, right? Um, so I think in non-pregnant women, we have to keep in mind that like blood pressure is a, a trend, right? It's a pattern. So, you know, oftentimes... Uh, in the office, um, when I see one blood pressure reading that's too high, um, you know, I, I sort of delve into it a little bit more, you know, try to think if there's something going on that's causing them to um, have a high blood pressure. More often than not with my patients, it's because they were late to their appointment and they were running into the clinic. Uh, and so that's probably why their blood pressure is high. So I think the most important thing to do um, when you see a high blood pressure is to actually check it again, um, probably maybe midway through when you're done with the interview or, you know, at the end, just to make sure that it actually is a real, you know, elevated blood pressure. But let's say you do have a patient who has high blood pressure, you check it again, and it's also high, you know, that definitely could be, you know, a sign that they're, they are developing um, high blood pressure. Um, normally, we would screen, you know, once a year, 
for younger patients um, up until, you know, the age of 21. Um, and then usually between 22 and 39, we'll screen. Most people do yearly, but uh, the recommendation is at least once every three to five years. So that's kind of a low hanging fruit for all a lot of folks, you know, and then anyone over 40 once a year, definitely. Let's say you're tackled with okay, this person definitely has this high blood pressure. What do you do? I think the best thing that folks can do uh, is kind of just get a little bit more a sense of what's uh, going on. What's their diet like? Um, you know, get a little more history about kind of what their daily habits are, getting more a sense of their anxiety and, uh, and their mood and kind of these day-to-day things that might trigger your blood pressure. Um, and that definitely will add a lot of context and, and sometimes might even be the the solution. Thank you so much for that, Ahmed. I think the the next thing that I feel like I get a lot of is, you know, I'll have a lot of women who come and see me and I'm the only doctor that they've ever seen because they're like, oh, well, you know, when I was younger, you took like, you know, the OBGYNs here took care of me when I was pregnant. I had my babies with you. So I like you guys. I don't really want to go see, or I don't really think I need to go see a primary care doctor, but now they're 45, you know, you do your annual history taking and they tell you like, oh yeah, my mom had type two diabetes and she was diagnosed sometime in her forties or fifties. And I'm always like, oh crap, like when should I have started her diabetes screening? How do I start her diabetes screening? So coming from a primary care doctor's perspective, you know, when should I have started that diabetes screening and how should I have done that? (laughs) Yep. Um, So definitely diabetes, another very common uh, thing that you guys definitely will will face everywhere. Um, You know, I think certainly when patients who are in their 40s even have risk factors, a lot of our patients already have risk factors, they're overweight or they have a family history, like you mentioned, Um, you know, it's always good to check typically either uh, an A1C, uh, which is a good measure of how their sugar has been doing the last three months, good average. Um, checking that at least once, um, the recommendation says, you know, once every three years is probably reasonable to do. Sometimes if you have, uh, patients who have multiple risk factors, um, you know, overweight, obese, high blood pressure, all that, um, sometimes we'll check an A1C once a, once a year, um, just to see, um, how they're kind of trending. Um, you know, another good reason to check is, you know, as it kind of helps to provide opportunity for counseling and opportunity for um, providing more advice about ways to prevent the progression to diabetes. You know, I think one of the difficulties I have in clinic is when I have that patient who has pre-diabetes, so they're not quite there yet, um, but they're getting close. Um, They don't have any disease. And so they're saying, doc, I don't have anything wrong with me right now. Um, you know, even though that is true, um, I think it's, it's a great opportunity to sort of have that number and say, Hey, you know, you're, you're not there yet, but you're getting close. And and here are a couple of things that we should maybe talk about to kind of prevent that from happening. Yeah. Kind of moving along those lines, no, another very common problem is obesity and sedentary lifestyle, right? Um, and kind of all of the associated problems that go along with that, whether that be, you know, pre-diabetes, as you mentioned, um, or dyslipidemia, atherosclerosis, deconditioning in general. How do you go about doing actual counseling for diet, lifestyle, obesity for your patients? That's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, I will say that there's 
probably isn't one surefire way of doing this. Um, you know, every patient's different, but definitely I think the way to approach uh, counseling patients on diet and, and sort of lifestyle modifications is, you know, first of all, getting a sense of, you know, kind of where they're coming from things, you know, getting a good sense of kind of what they eat on a day-to-day -day basis, what kind of access to food they have. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, are they the ones cooking or not? Cause that can determine what they, what they're eating every day. Um, and so, you know, I find that getting that context first is better because then it allows you to sort of make um, some real changes. So if someone tells you, Hey doc, I, I eat three meals a day, I eat veggies, but then, you know, they tell you, but at the end of the day, I snack on cheeses or something. Then you, then you, at least you have that context where you can say, Hey, there's a tangible goal, um, that we can sort of start with maybe cutting back on the cheeses or cutting back on the soda. Um, you know, so, so really getting the story from them. Um, and, and the way I tend to do it personally is I ask, just take me through the last 24 hours. What have you had to eat for the last 24 hours? And, you know, people tend to remember what they ate over the last 24 hours, I would hope. Um, and so I, I think that's a good way to, that's a good opener, uh, opening question. Um, and then, you know, as far as things like exercise, I, you know, I'll ask, you know, oftentimes when we'll ask in social history or we'll, or we'll ask in like, what do you do for a living? I sort of get a sense of what their physical activity is like, you know, and then another, another good thing to ask is kind of what's their environment like, where they live. You know, sometimes folks will tell you, I live, you know, in an apartment building, but then there's a park nearby. And so that kind of provides an opportunity for, for us to sort of say, well, you know, there's a park nearby, is it close? How big is it? Do you think you'd be able to sort of walk around a few minutes a day? And so getting a, a good context, which I know that even in primary care, we have like 15 minutes per patient, you know, we can't do all of it, but getting that story first is so important um, because it allows you to sort of set up goals that are tangible for your patient. I think kind of going along the same lines, Ahmed, one of the things that I feel like a lot of our patients come in with is metabolic syndrome, right? And we've talked a little bit about type 2 diabetes. We've talked about obesity, lifestyle changes. What about assessing cardiovascular risk and, you know, checking lipid panels and like starting statins, like doing all of those things I, I always feel a little uneasy about. And I'm always like, well, maybe you should have a primary care doctor now, but certainly, you know, it'd probably be easier if I had already sent those labs and then refer to the primary care doctor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's also a, a very common area you guys will, will hit on. And so, you know, I think one thing that's important to, to recognize, you know, thinking about our 40-year-old woman, you know, is that um, a lot of our calculators uh, for cardiovascular disease, um, you know, the big one that we use, the ASCBD, um, is, has been predominantly made for patients that are, I believe, 45 uh, and plus. And so really, you know, you can try to use it in younger folks, but it doesn't necessarily apply. And so in, in sort of getting all this work up and, and getting the blood pressure and getting lipids and whatnot, which patients like these 40 to 75, the advice is uh, to check lipid levels at least every five years for screening. You know, let's say you do hit, uh, you have a 40-year-old patient and they, um, you check a lipid um, because you're screening and all of a sudden their LDL, which is the 
what we call the sort of the low density cholesterol or aka the bad cholesterol um, is all of a sudden elevated you know it's greater than 130 is what we kind of constitute as like dyslipidemia so then you know what do you do and so you know a big portion of it again to start goes back to counseling right going back to uh, discussing with them lifestyle modifications but let's say you have a patient that has tried lifestyle modifications or is like, hey doc, I can't do any of that. You know, my life is too busy or what do I do? Um, or let's just say you have a patient who um, is very, has multiple issues, has blood pressure, has diabetes, has lipids all over the roof and you end up calculating this risk score, um, which, you know, this ASCVD risk is a, is a, it's a risk of having uh, coronary events over the next 10 years. And so let's say that is over 7%, which is our cutoff. Then at that, at that point, you start thinking this patient would probably benefit from some sort of pharmacologic intervention that can help them uh, improve their lipids. So usually, you know, on kind of our side of things of primary care, that's kind of the way we sort of start introducing the idea of statins is saying, you know, your lipids are elevated, um, your risk score of having, you know, heart disease in the future is, is greater than 7%. And so we definitely want to talk about diet and exercise, but maybe it's time to start a statin. You know, and I would say from our end, I, I totally would empower you guys to, if you're interested in starting statins, you can. But I would say at this point, it's one of those things where um, if you find a patient with high cholesterol levels, you know, it's time to send them our way um, so that we could talk a little bit more about um, how to manage it. We'll see when the MFMU trial on pravastatin is complete of whether we end up <laughs> prescribing statins, but I think for now we may leave it to you, Ahmad. Um, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> kind of moving on from these topics about, I guess, you know, the traditional like body health type of things. No, one other area where OBGYNs and primary care physicians sort of as the folks who are at the entry to care often run into screening and counseling issues is with mental health and substance use. And in particular, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on substance use because many times we're fortunate in pregnancy that extensive alcohol use is fairly rare. And also there's a lot of like extrinsic motivation from the sense of just being pregnant to cease using substances. But have things moved beyond like a cage screening for alcohol use? And then like, what do you do for sort of more entrenched behaviors when folks get into their 40s and 50s in terms of counseling, screening, um, and arriving at a healthier place for your patients with substance use? Yeah, it's that's a it's a big question. I, I can say that we've moved beyond the cage questionnaire. You know, there are there are still remnants of it here and there in the primary care setting, um, but we definitely have moved beyond that. You know, one that that is used is uh, the screening tool that as, that I've seen sort of in the past is this craft uh, can kind of help you diagnose uh, substance use or dependence when it comes to substance use it's really one of those things where i i just ask kind of very openly and sort of just if i'm sitting there with the patient you say do you use any alcohol you know the classic uh, trend of questions any alcohol no any tobacco no and since any other substances and i just sort of ask out openly and i give examples and you know i oftentimes when i if you as long as you say kind of in a non 
judgmental way. People are, are pretty open about it, um, especially at that age. They're like, yeah, you know, I tend to use this or that, you know, and, and, and really the key is kind of, again, getting a good sense of, you know, why and, and the how uh, they're using it. And, and so um, asking a lot of open-ended questions. So how often are you using it? But then tell me more about, you know, kind of a day and, and, and how, how you're using it. And again, I think that's very helpful um, because it just gives you a sense of what are the things that motivate, motivate the use and, and why are they dependent on it? Is there some component of mental health in play? Um, are there anxieties or depressions or mood changes that are contributing to it? Are there stressors? You know, once you have a sense of those things, um, then we're able to sort of give a little bit more help. Um, one example I can give, and, and you know, I, I give a shout out to to our primary care clinic is, you know, we have a, a subsection of the clinic that is is called the addiction recovery clinic, um, and so it's meant for you know patients who um, who have different types of substance use and are interested in in, in working on it. What's nice about it is that once you sort of identify these things, you know, identify a particular substance and particular motivations behind it, then you can sort of have more nuanced conversations with your provider, but also with uh, this particular clinic has um, addiction specialists, um, has psychologists, um, uh, social workers, and people who you can talk to, to kind of really get down to the nitty gritty of it. Um, you know, and, I, and my sense in kind of just working in this clinic um, for the last few years is that that is some that sort of addiction recovery aspect of it is becoming a little bit more and more common. And so, you know, I would say that from your end, from the OB/GYN perspective, you know, definitely um, getting getting the story, making sure that they're safe, um, that they're sort of not engaging in super dangerous behaviors to get these things. And then if you do have available to you, you know, things like an addiction recovery clinic or addiction recovery specialists, that would probably be a good place to refer them out to. Thanks so much for that, Ahmed. I think the other thing that I wanted to ask you a little bit more about is cancer screening as well. I don't think we need to necessarily talk about like cervical cancer screening or breast cancer screening. We do have episodes for those topics, but I think sometimes as OBGYNs, we kind of have tunnel vision and we like think about cervical cancer and breast cancer and that's it. But certainly, you know, women are susceptible to many types of cancer. So what else should we be screening for? And I'm thinking about like colon cancer or like lung cancer, even skin cancer. Like what are, what are the recommendations for those things? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's bread and butter primary care. So I'm happy to hear that other, other providers of the physicians are asking about this. Um, so colorectal screening is one of the big ones, obviously. Um, and we typically tend to start, um, at age 50, you know, unless there are other reasons such as strong family history or one of those kind of rare genetic diseases, you know, for most of the population, the recommendation is at 50. Um, so from ages 50 to 75, you tend to screen these patients for colon cancer. What, me what methods do we use? What modality do we use? You know, a lot of that has kind of changed slowly recently, and it's also informed by the by your patient's preference. Um, and I'll tell you from the primary care side, you know, while colonoscopy is still the gold standard, you know, it's, it's tough to sometimes have a patient accept a colonoscopy or go in for a colonoscopy. Um, there's a lot of per different perceptions behind it. There's, you know, 
um, informed stories behind it. There's a lot. And so when you hit those kinds of patients who, you know, you're saying, well, you're at the age 50, it's time for colon can you know, colon cancer screening. Obviously you get a good history, but if you bring up colonoscopy and they say, doc, I don't know about that. I had a friend who got a colonoscopy and they ended up in the hospital. Then what do you do next? I don't want you guys to be stuck. I think the next step is, you know, to have a conversation about offering other things, other modalities. One of the big ones that has come out recently is FIT testing. Um, and so FIT testing, um, it's, you know, it stands for fecal immunochemical testing. You have just one stool sample. You, you give them a kit, they take it home. They only need one sample. They bring it back in um, and, they, and it gets sent out. Um, and, you know, if it tests negative, then they can continue doing this yearly. And so that seems, that's a very appealing option for a lot of folks because it's not invasive. It's something they can do on their own and you do it once a year. Now, if it's positive, and this is something that's important if you tend to go down this route and, and engage with and fit testing with your patient, you do have to let them know that if it is positive, may have to, you will have to recommend colonoscopy um, because that's the gold standard. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of people sort of, when you present it that way, they understand and, and they tend to opt for, opt for the FIT testing. So, so that's a big one. And then there's other ones, you know, there's a FIT DNA test. Um, there's uh, imaging, different types of CT imaging that you can do. Potentially there's flexible sigmoidoscopy or CT colonography that you can do once every five years. And then, you know, the standard colonoscopy is once every 10 years, if it's normal, all these are, if it's normal. Um, but, you know, I think in the day-to-day -day setting and kind of interacting with your patient, um, the most common struggle is to colonoscopy or to not colonoscopy. And when they say no, then offering other things like the FIT testing is probably the next best step. Um, and what about like lung cancer and skin cancer? Yeah. Um, so lung cancer screening is... I think relatively one of our newer ones, uh, newer guidelines, um, and by new, it's probably a little bit more than five, 10 years old. But anyway, we all do a bit of lung cancer screening asking if people smoke. Nowadays, what's, what's changed is that if someone has a history of smoking, they're between the ages of 55 and 80 years, um, and they have this either a 30-pack year smoking history and are still currently smoking, or they quit within the last 15 years, then um, there is a recommendation to offer um, a CT scan of the lungs uh, to screen for colon cancer to look for nodules. And that would be done at least once a year. I think you mentioned skin cancer was yes. the other one. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Didn't want to leave you hanging there. So, um, so as far as uh, skin cancer, um, you know, the guideline for skin cancer is a, um, is a little bit looser. You know, obviously we're looking for things like melanoma, which is one of the most common cancers here in this country. Typically what we say is, you know, anyone between 13 to 24 years, you should be thinking about uh, skin cancer, um, at least at their annual visit, um, especially in older adults who've had a lot of sun exposure and whatnot. You know, there isn't any um, specific test um, that one can do. You know, oftentimes uh, the way they present is they'll say, doc, I have this new bump, what is it? And, and really that's where you, that's where you start. Um, and, you know, in the past we would you know, there were recommendations for doing like full body skin exams and there's not a heck of a lot of evidence for that. Um, I think the patient's your best ally in kind of telling you where the new spots are. Um, you know, but the thing you can do um, is kind of discuss preventative uh, behavior. So using broad spectrum sunscreen, uh, SPF 15 or greater, you know, 
um, avoiding the sunlight at its peak hours if you can, um, you know, wearing uh, clothes that kind of, you know, long jeans, long, long sleeve uh, clothing that can kind of cover, cover the skin. Those are kind of the best, best uh, preventative advices you can offer. And then, you know, and then telling your patient, hey, you know, skin, just kind of looking at your skin from time to time is an important thing. And if you find any new bumps or anything, just don't hesitate to show me and ask me about it, um, especially in our elderly folks. All right. Well, Dr. Legrano, thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Um, it was really a pleasure and kind of a whirlwind tour through primary care, but I think be very much appreciated by our listeners. Great. Always a pleasure to, to help out. All right. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Facebook or Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or if you want to give the show some love, find us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Over Coffee. For this show and any other show, we have adjunct learning materials on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction for this or any of our previous episodes or just want to send us a note, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>